Hello, and welcome to the HP Lovecraft Book Club. Uh, in this episode, I will begin my look at uh, The Shadow Over Innsmouth. So H.P. Lovecraft's The Shadow Over Innsmouth is maybe his most thematically rich tale. If someone asked me for a work by Lovecraft that most summarized his perspectives, I would not hesitate to lead them to The Shadow Over Innsmouth. We can make a short list of some of the topics that Lovecraft examines in this story. Um, most prominently, race and miscegenation. Uh, we see New England geography. We see a lot on vernacular traditions. Uh, exposing and forgetting horrors, hereditary, heredity, the sea, uh, alcohol, uh, the other gods, religion, and dreams. And this list is not complete. We can also see this story as a story of the Great Depression, uh, dealing with a commodity, uh, community in decline, awash in poverty despite being defined by a gold smelting industry. The Shadow Over Innsmouth was written in November and December of 1931, not long after the completion of At the Mountains of Madness. We cannot help but imagine some professional frustration at this time in his career. The Whisperer in Darkness was published in the middle of 1931 and it promised a new phase in Lovecraft's career with a new style and approach to his own world and mythology. But the two tales he wrote in 1931, this one and The Mountains of Madness, could not find a market until years later. His next published story, Dreams of the Witch House, was bold and, for my money, stands as one of his best, but was not well received at the time. Not until 1936 would most of his later tales be published. At the Mountains of Madness, The Shadow Over Innsmouth, Thing on the Doorstep, The Shadow Out of Time, and The Haunter in the Dark would all find markets in 1936 and 1937. Lovecraft was forced to find income writing revisions, of which many exist. We'll have no less than 25 episodes covering hundreds of pages of revisions and contributions that Lovecraft worked on in the final eight years of his life. Like his previous two stories, The Shadow Over Innsmouth tells the story of an inquisitive narrator who learns something after exploring a new world. Later, the narrator takes the pen and paper to warn the reader about repeating the exploration. For Wilmarth, it was Vermont. For Dyer, it was the Mountains of Madness of Antarctica. And for Robert Olmsted, unnamed in the story, it is a small New England town of Innsmouth. While on the surface, it was not as exotic a locale as the previous two stories, it is no less fascinating. Foreign, mysterious, and dangerous. What it is not is primordial, like the Antarctic Mountains or the Vermont Woods. If anything, Innsmouth strikes us as a modern city. It has more in common with the decaying post-industrial town that we might run into in the modern-day Rust Belt than the ancient Puritan survival like Kingsport, or even the Georgian beauty of an Arkham or Providence. Innsmouth does not seem much older than one of its oldest inhabitants, the drunkard Zadok Allen. In fact, uh, Innsmouth is a couple centuries older, but it just has a much newer uh, feel to it. Another way to examine the geographical location of Innsmouth is to compare it to other isolated communities in his stories, most specifically Dunwich. Dunwich is a rural backwater isolated and plagued with strange traditions. Innsmouth is urban, tied to the ocean, but also isolated and plagued with strange foreign traditions. Dunwich's traditions are left clearly an import from the outside, however. One may also think of Red Hook, as described in The Horror at Red Hook, uh, in the focus uh, that Lovecraft gives to the importation of a tradition from abroad. 
Never far from the surface is the fact that Inn's most troubles seem to come from outside. This has left a bitter taste in the mouths of many readers who see in Innsmouth an example of Lovecraft's anti-foreign racism. We cannot deny that all of his later tale of all of all his latest tales and stories, published under his name, um, this one is the most interested in race and immigration. It may also be the last of his stories to deal explicitly with immigration. Um, let us not reduce this story to bad racialism, however. As with Dunwich, Lovecraft seems to be struggling with isolation and interconnectedness. Dunwich's horrors come from its isolation. Innsmouth's horrors come from its relation to the outside world. In this sense, it's much more like Red Hook. So is there really an escape? The real villain is vernacular traditions. Whether they exist in the root structures of rural communities or across the seas like invisible, invisible telegraph lines in the stories like Innsmouth and the horror at Red Hook. I would like to take a moment to play with an idea that is probably not anywhere close to Lovecraft's intention. After Innsmouth's decline, which happened in historical memory, the town's main industry became gold smelting. As any high school U.S. history student knows, the debate over the gold standard was crucial to later 19th century politics. Farmers and other debtors advocated the free coinage of silver to free themselves from deflation and the power of creditors. Powerful banking interests enriched by deflationary politics and high interest rates defended the gold standard. A high point in the struggle against the gold standard came in the populist movement of the 1880s and 1890s. After World War I, as European and American economies returned to the gold standard, the deflationary pressure of a restricted monetary supply returned. Many now see the gold standard as a major cause of the Great Depression, as it worsened an already weakened rural economy by keeping prices low and interest rates high for indebted farmers. While I doubt Lovecraft had this in mind explicitly, the juxtaposition of Innsmouth's fetish for gold smelting, alongside its obvious poverty and isolation, is fascinating in the context of this history. While I know of no letter of Lovecraft dealing with the gold standard, he rarely wrote about economics until the 1930s anyways, if I find one, I'll be sure to mention it in upcoming episodes. The first letter that I'm aware of that sees Lovecraft dealing explicitly with the Great Depression was written in the later part of 1931 to Elizabeth Tolbridge. So let's get into the story. It begins with an act of forgetting. Like At the Mountains of Madness, this story begins with a cover-up. But while the earlier story just begins with the official account, that is in fact uh, a lie, or at least a partial lie, this story begins with the act of suppression itself. As we saw before, stories such as uh, the case of Charles Dexter Ward and the lurking fear ends with a violent act of forgetting. Here, we start with it. The federal government, for some unstated reason, destroys the town of Innsmouth. This took place after an investigation in the winter of 1927 to 1928. Then in February 1928, the town is dynamited, the people arrested and questioned, and even a submarine is suggested to have used a torpedo to destroy a location called Devil's Reef a geological feature outside of the town itself. Um, more than this, the people who are arrested were disappeared or resettled without trial or report. Some were rumored to be put into concentration camps. The entire thing was done posing as an attack on the illicit alcohol trade taking place in Innsmouth. Now, as we'll see later in the story, there is some truth to the claim that Innsmouth produced illicit whiskey. Um, so this allowed the government to... Uh, pursue uh, its attack on Innsmouth under the cover of uh, enforcing prohibition. 
More than the destruction of the town itself, there is a ban on conversation about Innsmouth. More than this, as usual in Lovecraft stories, it's based on people voluntarily choosing not to discuss a horrible memory. But there seems also to have been a semi-official acceptance of the silence. Our narrator claims to be the one to break the silence and speak the truth that many others know. He does this by telling the story of his own trip to Innsmouth a few months before the federal investigation begins. He, and we'll just call him he or the narrator uh, for these episodes, although Lovecraft did have a name for him, it's not in the story itself. So he toured New England towns in the summer of 1927. We know that the events that happened on, on July 16, 1927, as they're uh, recounted in the story, led specifically to the police investigation. Um, so why report more than this? Why come out and tell his story? If he just wanted to warn the public and the police of an evil in Innsmouth, he clearly did this immediately after the events of July 16th. Um, the town now is destroyed. The people are scattered. What is the point of this narration? For Dyer in At the Mountains of Madness, it is clear his motivation. Even Wilmarth in The Whisper in Darkness is clear about his reasons for keeping a record. But why is our narrator of this story trying to unearth the past? As we will see, it has much to do with his personal relationship with Innsmouth. In any case, during his sightseeing tour of New England, the narrator hears of Innsmouth while in Newburyport on his way to see Arkham. His interest is piqued by the fact that the town is not on maps. New England is his mother's native soil, and he wants to completely explore it. He is also motivated by general curiosity. He asks the man in the train station about the town, and it begins to tell him the story of Innsmouth. We get several detailed histories throughout the story uh, from different witnesses. More than any other Lovecraft story, this one gives us details of what local people say about a forbidden place and hidden traditions. In many other stories, we have seen gossip and rumors being hinted at or suggested but not fully detailed. Here we get the details. Uh, in the same way how at the Mountains of Madness, we get a detailed description of the monsters, uh, here we get a detailed description of the traditions and the mythology and the cultists. In fact, even more so than the Call of Cthulhu, this story documents the actions and workings of an active um, cult tied to these uh, outer gods. Now, the ticket agent, who is the man at the train station that our narrator is discussing this with, tells him that a bus comes twice a day run by a man named Joe Sargent, but also tells him that the local people do not use this bus. This bus is filled mostly with Innsmouth folk uh, traveling to Newburyport or to Arkham. We get in some detail the history of the town. The ticket agent is fairly well informed about its economy, its people, and its history from both rumors and it seems from uh, some more reliable sources. We suspect many in Newburyport or perhaps Arkham know this history. Uh, which is why they tend to want to stay silent about the town. Here is some of what he says. That refinery, though, used to be a big thing. An old man Marsh who owns it must be richer than Croesus. Queer old duck, though, and sticks mighty close to his home. He's supposed to have developed some skin disease or deformity late in his life that makes him keep out of sight. Grandson of Captain Obed Marsh who founded the business. His mother seems to have been some kind of foreigner. They say a South Sea Islander. So everyone raised Cain when he married an Ipswich girl 50 years ago. 
They always do that about Innsmouth people. And folks here and hereabouts always try to cover up any Innsmouth blood they have in them. But Marsha's children and grandchildren look just like anyone else, so far as I can see. I've seen them pointed out to me here. Though, come to think of it, the elder children don't seem to be around lately. Never saw the old man. And why is everyone so down in Innsmouth? Well, young fellow, you mustn't take too much stock in what people around here say. They're hard to get started, but once they do get started, they never let up. They've been telling things about Innsmouth, whispering them, mostly, for the last hundred years. I guess, and I gather they're more scared than anything else. Some of the stories would make you laugh about old Captain Marsh driving bargains with the devil and bringing imps out of hell to live in Innsmouth, or about some kind of devil worship and awful sacrifices in some places near the wharves that people stumble on around 1845 or whereabouts. But I come from Panton, Vermont, and this sort of story don't go down with me. End quote. And this is just part of his much longer discussion of Innsmouth history. Now, the focus of his tale is <clears throat> Captain March, Marsh. Where did Captain March get his riches? Some say he, see, he got it from pirate treasure. Others saw him as a more conventional merchant. But he seems to have brought something back from abroad. Now, there is also records here of a major epidemic in 1846, which the ticket agent insists was brought in from, quote, China or somewhere by the shipping, end quote. The agent then addresses the racism towards the Innsmouth people. They're clearly seen as racially other. Is this due to miscegenation? Uh, perhaps partially. At least that's what our storyteller seems to think. Quote, but the real thing behind the way folks feel is simply race prejudice. And I, I don't say I'm blaming those that hold it. I hate those Innsmouth folks myself. And I wouldn't care to go to their town. I suppose you know, though I can see you're a Westerner by your talk, what a lot our New, York, New England ships used to have to do with the queer ports in Africa, Asia, and the South Seas, and everywhere else, and what queer kinds of people they sometimes brought back with them. You probably heard about the Salem man that came home with a Chinese wife. And maybe, you know, there's a, still a bunch of Fiji Islanders somewhere around Cape Cod. You may also want to think uh, about the story that Lovecraft wrote much earlier in his career, uh, Arthur German, which is about a man bringing... Uh, a simian and a gorilla wife essentially back and starting a family line uh, with her. Now, but the features that he describes when documenting the so-called Innsmouth look do not quite match those of any particular race. Um, perhaps it's general miscegenation as the locals see it, but we're meant to think as readers that this look, the Innsmouth look, is far more insidious. Quote, some of them have queer, narrow heads with flat noses and bulgy, starry eyes that never seem to shut, and their skin ain't quite right. Rough and scabby, and the sides of their necks are all shriveled or creased up. Get bald, too, very young. The older fellows look the worst. Fact is, I don't believe I've ever seen a very old chap of that kind. Guess they must die of looking in the glass. Animals hate them. They used to have a lot of horse trouble before autos came in. End quote. So this is our first clear description of the Innsmouth look. We'll get uh, other descriptions of it in throughout the story. Um, now, when asked where to stay in Innsmouth, the ticket agent tells the narrator about the Gilman Hotel. But he does not advise our narrator to stay there. He tells the story of a man named Casey who stayed in the hotel only to be tormented and followed around at night after investigating the Marsh gold refining business. The ticket agent's tale then moves on to the decline of the town after the plague of 1846. Trade drops off, 
Most of the trade that remains is with the South Seas. One theory of the decline is that the plague took off the best of the community, leaving the most degraded population behind. This is not far from the theory of the decline of Dunwich, as in that town, the best quote-unquote products of that debased town tended to leave and not come back. Uh, and remember, there was the discussion of the, the, the degraded and sort of non-degraded uh, Watleys uh, in that story. Now, very few people seem to know that much about this town outside of these rumors, and a lot of what this ticket agent says is presented as suspect, but there is plenty of gossip about Innsmouth floating around. Um, one thing, though, that seems to be clear is that when people do investigate the town, they are resisted. One person was, in fact, driven insane by his visit to Innsmouth and sent to an asylum. So after all these strange tales, the ticket agent concludes that the town should be okay for a day trip, and it may be fun to explore for... Uh, adventurous person, but he warns him not to go out at night. Of course, this being a horror story, you can suspect that this warning will not be heeded. Our narrator decides to pursue his own investigation into the town's history, choosing to leave the next morning instead of that evening. He goes to the Newberry Public Library. He learns that Innsmouth was founded in 1643 and therefore is as old as Kingsport, but it did not reach its peak until the early 19th century. In contrast, Kingsport had its peak in the 17th century and seemed to have been stuck there. Arkham and Providence just seemed to have their peak in the 18th century and, at least architecturally, uh, have stayed there. This is at least how Lovecraft uh, diversified his New England geography by centuries. I've talked about this before in previous episodes. The narrator reads about Innsmouth history, its economy, gold smelting and fishing primarily, and its population. Uh, not too many foreigners tend to want to stay there, which uh, is an interesting fact given that uh, so much of the writing about Lovecraft's uh, racism centers on his anti-immigrant ideas. But here's a horrible, debased, degraded town that really has some foreign influence, but many foreigners also choose not to stay there, going to other parts of New England. Most striking is Innsmouth's unique jewelry. The ticket agent mentioned this as an extension of the smelting industry in his tale, but our narrator learns of a special Innsmouth style. Tiaras made in this Innsmouth style exist in collections throughout New England. He is able to visit one of these collections in Newburyport, and thanks to this, he's uh, introduced to one of these tiara, tiaras and is given and gives us a description. He writes, quote, Even now I can hardly describe what I saw, though it was clearly enough of a sort of tiara as the descriptions had said. It was tall in front and with a very large and curiously irregular periphery, as if designed for a head of almost freakishly elliptical outline. The material seemed to be predominantly gold, though a weirder, lighter lusterousness hinted at some strange alloy with an equally beautiful and scarcely identifiable metal. Its condition was almost perfect, and one could have spent hours in studying the striking and puzzling untraditional designs, some simply geometric and others plainly marine chased or molded in high relief on its surface with craftsmanship of incredible skill and grace. End quote. The narrator then becomes obsessed with this tiara, seeing it as a unique entity and separate from any other tradition in the world. There is also something distinctly personal about this tiara that the narrator cannot describe. He calls it a pseudo-memory. The origin of the tiara is vague, uh, 
like Innsmouth itself and like the Innsmouth look, the origins of the tiara seem to transcend cultures. It's not tied to any particular cultural tradition. It's not New English. It's not English. It's not European. It's not even South Pacific or African or any other influence. It just is its own unique thing. It is for this reason hard to say that the story is just about race, as one might be tempted to do. Something is degenerate about the people, economy, and the material culture of Innsmouth, but Lovecraft makes it clear that it's not tied to any civilization or culture specifically. One theory of the origin of the tiara is that it came from a pirate horde, which was also rumored to be the source of Captain Obed, Obed March's wealth. This theory is offered up by the curator of the collection, our narr- uh, of the collection that our narrator visited. She also tells them something about Innsmouth that the ticket agent overlooked or did not know. This is its major religion. It's that its major religion was not Christianity, but rather a quasi-pagan cult called the Esoteric Order of Dagon. And of course, if you haven't read Dagon, this is an important story to look at before jumping into the shadow over Innsmouth, because we see the same connections to the South Pacific. um, And there's a lot of uh, suggestion that what the narrator in Dagon experienced is connected in some way to the events uh, retold or told in the Shadow of Innsmouth. So this takes us to the end of chapter one of the Shadow of Innsmouth. In the next episode, we will look at chapters two and three and get a few more accounts of Innsmouth. One by a drunken old timer, another by a part-time Innsmouth residence, and yet another by the narrator's own foot tour of Innsmouth. What all these stories mean and the story and picture they describe will be the focus of the next episode. So uh, thank you for listening to this podcast. I hope you join me for the next episode when I'll be looking at going deeper into the shadow over, over Innsmouth and presenting more of my ideas and thoughts about it. If you have any suggestions or comments or thoughts about this story or anything about H.P. Lovecraft, please send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. Uh, you can also find me on Twitter or uh, leave a comment on the podcast feed or on iTunes. So as always, thanks for listening, and I will talk to you next time.